Hi, welcome to Beyond the Crisis, where we explore my, what the future might look like, and most importantly, how we can use this crisis to accelerate our progress in life, in work, and with our finances as well. So today, I'm happy to welcome two guests, uh, Nitin Ray and Allison Magyar. Uh, Nitin is the founder of Elevate Capital, uh, which is a venture capital firm uh, that helps fund underserved entrepreneurs and help them reach their highest potential. Allison is the founder and CEO of Hub, which is an event management software company. And she spent the better part of the last two decades in the event business, which I imagine in 2020 is an interesting business to be in. <laughs> so I'm interested to, to talk to both Nitin and Ali today. Uh, we're going to explore uh, how they're adopting to this changing world in 2020, how they're still making meaningful connections, and what leadership looks like in today's environment. So welcome both Nitin and Ali. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes. So Ali, I thought an interesting place to start, I heard a story that you told about a virtual event that you were doing live for 2,000 or 5,000 people, I believe. And uh, tell us about that event. And I think it's a good entryway into our first theme, which is how we're all adapting to what 2020 looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think if anyone turns on the news, you know how decimated the live events industry is. And I think we're all craving that human connection. But in March, when this first started to take shape, my phone was a constant cross crisis line because I have spent 20 years in the meetings industry. And so I saw so many friends and colleagues and people that I admired and respected consistently calling and talking about being let go and that they didn't know what the new world of events would look like. And virtual events to everyone meant 90s video game. Like who did a virtual event? You just go in person, like that's the cool stuff. And so as I started to see more and more happening as our industry was very quickly uh, turning towards more of a virtual world, I decided to put together a virtual event for the meetings industry to really showcase how it didn't have to suck and how we could get our hands-on uh, approach to what it actually meant to produce a virtual event and how we could be successful with that pivot. And I'm, I'm sure the word pivot, everyone's tired of it in 2020, but it's really the truth of the matter. So from the idea of the event to the actual event day was less than six weeks. And over that time, we were able to have over 5,000 meeting planners join us from 60 different countries around the world. And it really was a test bed. What worked, what didn't, how did we create human connection? How did we replicate all of the benefits of an in-person event virtually? And I learned a ton through the process too. I was live streaming a keynote and in the middle of the keynote to 5,000 people, my internet cuts out at my office totally unbeknownst to me. My poor speakers are in a green room, not having a clue what's going on. So, you know, you live and you learn and you sort of get the battle scars of trying out new things and really pushing the bounds. And it really gives us a good foundation to stand on when we can get real actual experience and feel the confidence of having some skills that can relate towards the future. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think if, if 2020 has done one thing, it's kind of pushed people to be creative, try new things, because, you know, the constraints that we're, we're all working under has encouraged people to, to try new things. Uh, so, Nitin, kind of in this same vein, I know that your career, uh, you've done some different things. You've been uh, an entrepreneur, you founded a business, uh, you, angel investing, and now uh, kind of a, your, your adaption is to this, what, what I've 
seen you call the blind spot or this opportunity gap that's out there in the venture capital industry. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you've adopted where you've worked in your career to this new opportunity that you're seeing? Well, you know, the opportunity is not something that's new. That's always been there. Um, uh, if you look at data, uh, and, you know, most of what I'm doing is based on sort of data, uh, you know, not, not um, uh, hearsay, is that, you know, less than 4% or maybe 4% of capital uh, goes to women founders. And when you start breaking it up into minorities and people of color, um, you know, that number start dwindling very rapidly to like less than 1%. Uh, so being a minority entrepreneur, you know, 25, uh, 26 years ago, um, I faced the same challenges, right? Um, there was not, there was lack of access to capital for guys like me who were great engineers, but uh, not necessarily great founders or entrepreneurs or CEOs. So having experienced that myself um, and, and being able to overcome it, um, that, you know, when I decided that I wanted to do a fund uh, apropos to angel investing, and, and I, even as an angel investor, intentionally or unintentionally, my first few investments were in women entrepreneurs and, and minority entrepreneurs. I, uh, I decided I wanted to do it because of this gap and uh, this opportunity gap. And if you look at the Indian American community, specifically our community, you know, we, we had the challenges, we overcame, and we've been able to create wealth. And I want to support these other communities like African American, Latinx, uh, in addition to women, for them to help create generational wealth. So I'm sort of pattern matching my own experience, but uh, being the champion for it and being out there because I have the money and I have the means and I have the privilege and I want to be able to inspire others to, to come together with me, which I've been able to do with the first fund and invest in companies like Allie's who, you know, when she tells you her story of venture capital, uh, that we want to be the, the person that is their friends and family. We want to be the person that's their first money, money in. We want to be the person who really provides them that support, the shepherding and mentoring to become successful. And I had experience with all of that. Yeah, that makes sense. I heard an interview recently with uh, Katrina Lake, who's the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix. And she talked about her experience uh, trying to raise money. And that uh, the question was around, how did you build this company that was so capital efficient? And her answer was, well, that wasn't my intention. Uh, I actually tried to raise a lot more money, but I wasn't able to do it. <laughs> and we, we had to figure out how to be capital efficient. So, you know, essentially what I was thinking about is, is uh, you know, constraints are kind of the, the mother of all invention, right? And so yeah. the question would be either in 2020, the constraints that are forced upon us, or just the types of companies that you're investing in, in where there are a, a lack of venture capital uh, companies, money that's poured into that space. What, I guess, success stories have you seen in, in either of those scenarios around constraints being forced on you, but yet uh, companies or Alley Hub specifically being able to th thrive because of those constraints? Well, I've got success stories both within the Elevate Capital Fund and also, you know, prior to that uh, through Thai Angels, where, you know, what I found is companies that are led by women and people of color, minority entrepreneurs, they, because they have those constraints, 
they are, you know, more efficiently utilizing the resources they have available to them to build their business and be more big. I mean, that's what I did. I I didn't have access to capital, so I self-funded my company for two years before I even went out to even raise an angel round. So they come more big. Uh, their ideas are different. So a good example of that would be Blendor with Stephanie Lampkin, who had this idea of a blind hiring app because of her own personal experience of not being able to get a job with a large tech company because she was not technical enough. And she had an engineering degree from Stanford and an MBA from MIT Sloan you know, School of Business. So you know, those are some examples, or, or even with Ali and, and uh, her experience in the, the follow-on funding that she had to raise for a Series B. Like those kinds of challenges where you know, people are pattern matching to what they know and the venture capital industry pattern matching to what they know. And so the bar is higher, you know, for folks like us, you know, we're evaluated with a, uh, in a much different lens. Uh, so, you know, our successes are underestimated and our ability to fail is overestimated. And that results in people being overlooked or not considered. Yeah. Makes sense. Ali, anything that you would add to that or any uh, success stories uh, in 2020 based on the constraints that you're working under? Oh, man. Constraints in 2020 could take our whole interview. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think from a fundraising and, and capital perspective, it, it really was eye-opening for me because I've lived in the Northwest my entire life. And so I feel like I have been in the Northwest bubble, which is definitely a bubble. <laughs> and so as I look to um, go outside of what was available here locally and look for additional private equity or venture capital investment, I talked to over 60 private equity and venture capitalists in a period of three months and flew out to meet with them. And my bubble definitely burst. And I realized that we're very fortunate to live where we do in the support ecosystem that we have specifically in Portland and people like Nitten that put passion and energy into equality and changing the conversation in a very powerful way because it really isn't that way around the country. And so I think access to capital is a very big issue for women and minorities. You know, in 2020, in March, when everything started to fall apart, all of our customers lost because they didn't have live events. What were they doing? They were being slowed and they didn't have jobs. And so we didn't know what was going to happen. And so I think any good entrepreneur uh, has gone through good and the bad. And you know to immediately batten down the hatches, figure out what is going on so that you can make the best use of your capital runway. And for us, we're very blessed because of the fact that we do virtual events, that our pivot into that realm has allowed us to achieve 5x our goals for this year. And so for us, we've been able to lean into uh, utilizing the, the funding from that growth to be able to continue to change and innovate and lead our industry with the best virtual event platform. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations on that 5X number already. I, my question, I guess, would be, uh, what percentage of, of your business was virtual events versus in-person events before 2020? And how were you able to very quickly pivot, make that decision that, hey, we need to go all virtual and it's all hands on deck there? Um, walk through that a little bit if you could. Yeah, and I, I think you know this is where, when you're in business, you have to see where there's correlation. So 
How many events did we do that were purely virtual? Literally zero before March. We didn't do virtual events. We did in-person events and we did them extremely well. However, when you build a product, you build for optionality. You build for flexibility so that as needs change and pivot, that you can keep up with them. What we had was an incredibly flexible form that supported in-person events. And you, you need to do the same things in a virtual event as you do in a real event. You got to book sessions, you got to consume content, you need to meet with people, all the same things, just in setting it up to be in the Orlando Convention Center in room 201, now on Zoom link, or it's now in a virtual room. And so for us, we looked at that and said, our entire industry is changing. We've never focused on virtual only events. How do we take what we have and make it apply to what the market opportunity is right now? And because we built with flexibility in mind from the very beginning, it allowed us to overnight have the best virtual event platform in market because of our depth of knowledge in the industry, because of how we were able to make very simple changes that aligned to where events were going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it seems like a big part of events uh, definitely are a big value of events are people's ability to make connections and and knit and i know that uh, that's a big this notion of community is a big part of what you're trying to do with elevate capital uh, so either one of you maybe both talk about what you're seeing uh, in terms of how to make meaningful connections in a virtual world well it's um I think Ali could make, uh, uh, you know, she could answer this question uh, better than I would. But, you know, I mean, we have tools like Zoom, right? Um, I think everybody's been forced into it, right, because of COVID. So there's, there's not a choice right now. So, you know, thank God Zoom uh, that, you know, we got a tool that's easily accessible for people to, to make connections. And I think, you know, when it happened, you know, we were in the middle of our fundraise and we had to suspend it because it, we didn't know how investors were gonna take all of this. Uh, because, you know, usually, you know, the, in the, and I can only mostly talk about the investment process uh, for a minute, is, you know, people like to have those face-to-face -face meetings. But then, you know, I think everybody realized that business has to go on, life has to, con to conduct. So, and we have a great tool at our hand called Zoom. And of course, Ali's, we'll talk about her story, what she did. Uh, and I think people have adapted to it rather quickly, uh, to my surprise. And so we restarted our investment raise process in late May and got the state of Oregon, you know, made a $4 million commitment. And that was a catalyst for us to just go out and start talking to other investors. And I mean, I'm, I'm really proud to say we raised $22 million in the last three months. And I, I didn't think, I thought it was doom and gloom. So, yeah. so it has worked for us. Now, for companies, the virtual world has affected some companies' businesses, um, especially people that are in the retail and the, uh, you know, commercial real estate. I mean, there are certain businesses that are, you know, anything connected to that, any companies that are serving that have been really affected. But the companies that are online um, have seen growth in their business because people are buying things online. You know, again, the life has to go on. So more shopping online. Uh, virtual collaboration is become a big deal. And companies we thought would not take off or were in trouble 
have done really well because they had a virtual collaboration tool or they pivoted to to that so i think you know I, you know a lot of it is is dependent on what kind of business you are but you know the obvious businesses that have done well are ones that support e-commerce virtual collaboration and then people are just forced to use a virtual environment to conduct business and you know from an investment standpoint you know people have money to invest companies are looking to raise money new ideas are happening i mean we have no shortage of pipelines you know we've got a backlog of companies who'd love to get money from our our next fund so so from that perspective yeah we're surviving <laughs> yeah you know, into a, we're surviving our way into some of this new thing and who knows in 12 months or when this thing is over what the new norm is going to look like, but it's going to be really different than what we had before COVID. Yeah, I, I think that um, jumps into the next thing I'd be interested to explore. So, Ali, maybe one would be just what works and what doesn't. I would assume um, creating connect connections between uh, guest participants in, a, in an event is one of the most important things uh, that you're trying to provide, you know, that platform for people to make meaningful connections. So what, what works and what doesn't in this virtual world? And then um, when we get beyond all this, uh, so when we have the ability to meet face-to-face, -face, what does that look like? Do we move back to where we started? Uh, I wouldn't think so. Uh, do we move to some hybrid for future where some stuff is virtual, some stuff still in person? Um, what do you see that looking like going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, one of, I have a slide that I bring up every time I'm talking to a customer, and it just says in big, bold text, a webinar is not a virtual event. <laughs> and so many people, you probably have hundreds of emails in your junk box of people saying, join my virtual event, and it's basically just a webinar. It's just one-way content. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason why events is the, it used to be the 11th largest contributor to the GDP is because of the fact that people like to have connection. They really want to uh, make business happen. You want to do business with people you like and that you know and, and not just, um, you know, consume content. And so as we think about the way that virtual events happen, it really comes down to event planning and experiential design. And a lot of times you connect with them when there's authenticity. And so how do we create moments of authenticity? How do we take a virtual event that might have 20,000 people in it and create intimate ways of being able to connect? And so a lot of that just comes from the environment that you put in place to really replace an in-person event versus a webinar. So for us at Hub, that just means that we do things like allowing attendees to schedule meetings with other attendees and having recommendations for who might be interesting to you. It's allowing attendees to come in and see uh, maybe they're attending a data visualization conference. And so they come in and they say, I want to learn how to, you know, graph our graphs in a different way. And so they come in and they look at that topic and then they see the 10 experts that are available to consult with them and they can book a one-on-one -on -one with them. Or even as basic as what we did at Untethered, which was as people join the platform, our whole goal around that event was to create community and to create connection. And so when they joined the event, the first thing they saw was a video of us greeting them saying, hi, I'm Allie and my word of inspiration is hustle. Because regardless of whether I was working the denim jean wallet at 16 or now running one of the world's best virtual event tech technology companies, hustle has been my word of inspiration. 
So every time a keynote speaker introduced themselves, they introduced themselves with a word of inspiration. It was a connection point so that I had people handwrite me letters and say, hustle is my word too. This event completely changed my life. And they were able to connect with me over something that had nothing to do with my title, had nothing to do with anything other than we could connect on a very authentic level. And so I think we have to be thinking about creating moments for that connection and that authenticity. And as we look at the future of events, I, who the hell knows first, because our world is so crazy. So, you know, if I could predict it, I'd probably be pretty well off and my friends would love me. But what I'm, what I'm seeing right now is there is no return, at least in the short term, of what we used to do. And I used to personally manage events that were 30, 40,000 people that we would bring into a city. It's like bringing a city into a city. So I manage right. those really large technology conferences. And I do not see a return to that. And part of it is because of the pandemic. But the other part is because people are realizing that we've always done what we've always done and that there hasn't been a major disruption to it. And guess what? Digital's working. They can now expand their audiences to be worldwide. They can accommodate across all the different time zones. They can now, at a much lower cost per head, invite 100,000 people instead of 10,000 people because it doesn't cost as much to do things virtually. And so I do think that there will be a return of in-person events, but they will look very differently. I think they will always be coupled with a digital component that allows them to globally be able to advertise messaging and connect people together that helps their partner pipeline and really helps their product to shine. And I think the in-person elements are going to become curated experiences, almost like regional watch parties, right? You're my VIP customers, you're a prospect. I'm gonna bring you into this small group of maybe a couple hundred people, do something really special, but also connect you into that digital world so that we're all in this together. And so that's my, my forecast of what events are going to look like long-term. I think we're all anxious to get back there because yes, we do have great tools and yes, we can invent as much as possible to try to connect us, but we're really far away from being able to give someone a hug and to actually sit down over coffee and to have you know, that real ability to be present and in the moment. So I think some of that is gonna cause forced innovation over the next couple of years in terms of how we do connect online and what that looks like. And I'm personally terrified of robots and everything else, machine learning and AI. So all those things are a little scary to contemplate, but I do think that we will return because that is a, a human connection element that we all crave. But I also think it gives optionality to our entire world. If you're not a person that loves to go events and give hugs and be in a big group of people, you're gonna be able to be remote, but still feel connected and a part of things. And I think that's some of the beauty of what we're seeing in this transformation. Yeah, I, li I like that a lot. Go ahead, Nin. I so, I so agree with Ali. I think she's a visionary and a futurist and that's why we invested in her. Um, and, you know, I, I totally see it even as a business owner because I own a software company called First Insight where, you know, we spent an entire year going to events and we're not going to any. And we, and, and we feel in the future, it, they are going to be exactly what Ali is talking about, these curated events, but a lot of business is going to just be conducted optionally uh, virtually. Uh, so she's got, she's she's got the she's got the right mindset about that so <laughs> yeah and i know it's gonna be and it will be true like i have like 100 percent confidence that that you know what she's saying is what how things are going to turn out so. yeah 
I, I really like the quote, you know, never waste a good crisis. And I think 2020 has kind of forced that onto people. If they can figure out how to adapt and change, people are able, companies, products, everything, make a lot more progress than you probably thought you were going to make uh, in, in 2020. Um, the other thing that you touched on there, Ali, is just this notion of optionality, which I think you've mentioned a couple times now, and the future of events being uh, having optionality embedded in them, right? So you want to go in person or you want to be virtual, you know, there's an option for you. Um, and this notion of being able to further tailor and dial it into the individual consumer's experience. Um, I can definitely see that in events. And I think, uh, you know, even if I'm not in the events business, right? People are figuring out how they want to work with other businesses. And so if one company can give them options, and give them some uh, flexibility in terms of how they work, they're going to start demanding that from other companies. And so I think, you know, the bar gets raised across a lot of different industries based on uh, what progress people are making in different verticals. So um, I think that's, that's great. And this notion of the hybrid future, uh, it, it seems like we're going there for sure. And we're not going back. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of beauty in it. You know, it, it is so easy to get mired in the overwhelming feeling. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier where, you know, professional life as an entrepreneur, sure, it's going to be absolutely crazy and you can deal with it. But then when your personal life is also just as unknown and has a lot of, you know, triggering events, it'd be really yeah. overwhelming to deal with. But as I look at this crisis in 2020, I also look at it and say, wow, what an incredible gift to allow us to innovate without rules and without bounds because that never happens. Like there's always parameters in place. There's always an expectation. And I think right now is our opportunity to completely change things on its head. And so, so much good can come out of that as we think about you know, becoming a more inclusive world, which is I know a, a topic both Nit and I are completely passionate about. You think about inclusivity, think about the gift of being able to connect with people in a variety of different ways. Think about being able to apply different learning styles or different communication styles with people. Now, you know, every event that we're doing has closed captioning and has language translation, all these things that are bringing us closer as a human race that's incredible to witness. And it allows us to sort of take off some of those limitations that we may previously have had and say, let's reimagine a future together. What does this look like? How can we be more inclusive? How do we open the conversation? Because now is the time for it. So I think there's a lot of beauty coming out of this year as well. Yeah, I like that. A positive spin on 2020. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to, to dive in the other topic I wanted to dive into with both of you in our remaining time here is just this notion of leadership. Um, Ali, you talked about obviously business is stressful, personal life is stressful. Um, to, to be running a company through all this takes somebody that's a, a strong leader, I think. And so um, maybe just talk a little bit about the, uh, the journey that you've had in, in um, 2020 in terms of what you've seen uh, running a company, uh, knitting what you've seen through the entrepreneurs you're working with in running companies, and maybe talk a little bit about this, this role of the mentor, which I know is very important to what Elevate's doing. And, uh, you know, not just providing financial capital, but providing mentor capital as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just leadership generally in 2020, and then specifically the role of the mentor in 2020? Well, if you're talking about leadership in terms of our portfolio, 
companies, I mean, I mean, the beginning of the year was all rosy and great plans and, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, looking forward to the year. And then here comes February, I forget what the date is, or March, or I remember March 6th, I sent an email out to all our portfolio companies saying, watch your cash flow. Because I was pattern matching to prior crises and, and, um, and you know, you saw the stock market sort of, you know, it's funny how much we gauge our, our uh, you know, as to what's going on in the world to the stock market because that's what drives, you know, businesses and access to capital and so on and so forth. That's the temperature check. And, and what was amazing was the number of CEOs with Ali at the head of it uh, taking proactive action on making sure that they had cash runway uh, in case they lost customers or they couldn't raise capital and so on and so forth. And we suspended our fundraising so that I could focus on trying to support our portfolio CEOs. Our LP stepped in to support some of the portfolio CEOs who were experiencing challenges because they lost business uh, because of that. So the change, the big change is you went from sort of like this really optimistic, you know, we're going to get there this year to survival. How am I going to survive this, right? And we could only think about survival at that point. And then what's changed now is that as things have, have progressed, that people are still looking at the growth in the future. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. now it's looking at growth and future in a kind of a different way. And Ali just described her business, right? Yeah. And she would have described her business very differently uh, prior to March 6th. Uh, yeah. So, so there's been a profound change. Uh, and it is, it is, you know, it's the economic crisis that happened in the pandemic and kind of what, what the new world is that we're living in. And yes, we all hope because we're social animals uh, and social beings that things are going to change. But then Anytime something like this happens, some norms become the new norm. So it'd be really interesting to see where we end up at 2020 and then look at what 2021 would look like because there's going to be so many more changes coming in November in this country country in particular. But, you know, it, I, you know leadership is, in my opinion, um, if we're talking about in the startup world, you know, the, the the best CEOs, the best founders are the ones that can adapt to change quickly and come up with new innovative ideas. I mean, that's why we invest in them. And from a mentorship standpoint, you know, we don't tell them. Our mentor capital is not to tell them what to do. It's to shepherd them. It's to share our own experiences, give them some guidance and coaching if they want it from us, um, and offer them connections, um, ways to solve problems, because as founders in the fund, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through this before. I mean, whatever I did in the last couple, three, four, five months in supporting uh, founders was pattern matching to what I had to do in 1999 and then in 2008. And, and that's where, and then just, you know, accessing our resources and networks to help them with any kind of support that we can do so they can survive and then eventually thrive. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really, uh, really proud to say that majority of our portfolio companies have survived and now on their way to thrive. Yeah. Are, are things without challenge? Absolutely not. There will be a new set of challenges. 
but I'm I feel like the leaders leaders that we've invested in are all doing really well through the yeah. pandemic. I heard an interesting framing uh, for me anyway that around this survive to thrive dynamic, which was uh, it's a it's a basketball analogy, you know, going from playing defense to offense. Um, that makes sense, but the trick is the transition. You know, how do you know when to switch from being defensive and conserving cash to Ali, in your case, uh, you know, to going all in on the virtual business? So maybe Ali, could you talk a little bit about that transition point between we got to conserve cash to here's an opportunity and let's go after it? What did what did the leadership look like uh, making that transition, getting the team on board, and and going for it? Yeah, Nit and I were just talking about this last night where I said, it's so weird because, you know, four months ago, I was like, no, you can't spend $5. And now I'm like, what? We need to invest half a million to accelerate product. All right, let's do it. You know, it's this really weird juxtaposition uh, of things. And I, I still don't think I've quite processed it in my own brain. Um, you know, but it's, it's opportunity. It's looking at opportunity and weighing risk. And sometimes my husband makes fun of me and he says, well, you don't gamble, but you sure as hell do in business, you know, and that's really an entrepreneur mindset, right? It's when do you double down and when do you not? When do you walk away um, and conserve? And so, you know, for me, it really was, I am blessed to have an incredible leadership team at the company that is helping to carry out this vision. Uh, you know, as we went into the crisis and didn't know what was going to happen and how our product would be received as a virtual product, a lot of people were furloughed and we had to, you know, think about how do we manage our cash flow over this month. And I remember in February actually going on a walk with my COO and he was like, Allie, I think, I think this is going to be a big thing. We need to pivot all to virtual. And I was like, slow your roll. We're not going to pivot right away. You know, it was sort of like, hold on. But he started to do some things in the background that really set us up for success when things did hit in March. And so, you know, I think it very much is a, it's all calculated risk. It's conserve when you need to conserve and when you're not sure. And for us, it was, let's get out there. And uh, in May, we booked more business than what we had planned for the entire year. Now, take into consideration that all of our existing business had gone away. So thank God we did book more business than we had anticipated because all of our existing revenue had gone away. And so, but as we started to see the traction, I mean, our inbounds are insane. Like we can't keep up. People are calling my cell phone and saying, I've got to talk to people right now. And, you know, it, it really is what we're seeing is that this is an incredible opportunity in our market. And, you know, early in January, our growth was not going to be that great. We were prepared for more of a moderate growth. And so for us, it's COVID has had the exact opposite effect of what we would have expected. And so, you know, it really is a constant, what's happening right now? What do I need to be planning for in the future? How much runway do I have? And then for me, it's a battle because I'm a very conservative entrepreneur. I've always been bootstrapped until this last company. So I'm used to making every single dollar count and being very conservative. But I'm looking at this right now and saying, if there was ever a time to go big, it is right in this moment. And so I can be riskier right now because if I'm going to go do this thing and actually do it the way I want to, I got to put the pedal to the metal and just have every bit of confidence that we're going to succeed fully. And that's not something that I say lightly, um, especially based on, on this is my third company. But I think as an entrepreneur and using data, you make decisions about when to go all in and when to conserve.
Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on making a successful transition and for, for going all in uh, when you see an opportunity. Um, and I would tell you that Allie, again, stands out in this skill, in this ability to, to foresee. She foresaw what was coming and she took early action. That's a rare skill for a founder CEO. And part of it is just her own experience as an 18 year old founder. Like, you know, this was not her first rodeo. So she probably had gone through this before. And so it didn't surprise me that she took the lead in terms of um, our portfolio CEOs, in terms of how she responded with action and unbelievable action to conserve cash and then pivot and see the opportunity of what she could make out of this uh, pandemic and in terms of where the gaps were because she came from the event business. So she knew it better than anybody else in this country on how to handle that. So she's gonna build a great business. I mean, I, I just have like 200% confidence that this is gonna go even higher and bigger than what we all thought it would be like Hub as a company. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other piece I'll put in in there too, Isaac, as you were talking about sort of, you know, as a CEO, it's it's tough to make those decisions. And so the other element, it, there's two pieces. I remember when I was doing my very first fundraise for Hub and we were competing at the Seattle Angel Conference and I had an investor come up to me and say, you know, your business isn't that interesting, but I bet on the jockey, not the horse. So you have my vote. And I think that is something so relevant when I look at any entrepreneur, it's how do you respond to crisis and change? Because if you can make that pivot, you can make a business out of nothing, right? Because you have a vision, you see a market opportunity and you pivot to make that happen. If you're dead stuck on, this is my baby, it's what I built, things will come back you're going to be dead in the water. So I think good entrepreneurs really think, uh, and I'll use that word optionality again, it's something that's very core to my journey as an entrepreneur, but I think it's also really important. And one of the things that I was most grateful for in this transition was the support that I had in mentorship of getting there because there's also a lot of self-doubt. And when the whole world is falling apart, it's really difficult to know whether you're making the right decision or not. And I think that's where, you know, Nitin and his team have always provided that level of mentor capital for emotional support. I mean, all the things that come with being an entrepreneur. When I was on the road raising money with and looking and talking to all these private equity and venture capital companies, I would leave some of these meetings just, I mean, pissed because I would be patted on the head and told that I had a nice little lifestyle business and I'd be called honey over and over again in the boardroom. And I would call Nitin just infuriated and going, is this, is this my future? Like I can't get money. People talk down to me and it's really easy to get disheartened because when you're constantly fighting a battle, you can get exhausted. And so what, I've, what I have appreciated the most, uh, especially over the last six months, has been the constant support, the mentorship, the, hey, you're rocking it and you can do this. We have confidence in you. Because often as a leader in an organization, you're the one giving that to everyone else and you don't have that for yourself. And so it can be really hard to get that energy to fight the good fight. And so Nitin and his team have just really helped in giving us that emotional support, that ability to think bigger. And that's the really important part of choosing your investment partner in the right way is to ensure that you have people alongside of you that will make it happen. Yeah. Wow. Well, th thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry that you had those experiences, but I'm, I'm sure it's made you stronger and better 
uh, in the future. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and you know, everybody, no matter who they are, needs somebody that has their back. So uh, that's an that's an important piece. Um, I, I think that's it in terms of time. Uh, so before we go, I wanted to leave with my closing question, which is not so much business, but a little bit more personal. Um, the question is when things get back to normal, you know, when the health crisis is passed and, and it's behind us, what are you either most excited to get back to or what have you become convinced based on everything that's happened this year that you can just completely cut out of your life that you don't need to bring back? Ali, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Uh, the thing I am most excited for is that I turned 40 last week and I was supposed to have a blowout bash with all my best friends, hundreds of people from around the world in Las Vegas for an entire crazy weekend. Uh, and that is the thing I am looking forward to the most is being able to be around the people that I love and adore and have been a part of my journey over the years. So that's the thing I'm looking forward to the most. I think the thing I need the least is being at home in front of my kitchen 24 seven. So I am excited to get back into a routine, into some normalcy, um, while still keeping some of those moments that keep me grounded. I mean, this, this year has been a really strange year and I've had to ensure that I focus on my own personal well-being and health. So I wake up every morning, I exercise for an hour, I get out into my garden barefoot and I start my day off feeling very calm and grounded. And so there are some things that I want to continue to take with me uh, because a lot of our own mental health and, and self-awareness and health is so important to making sure that we can give our best to everyone else in our lives. Yeah, that's great. I got my 40th bash in just before all this happened, um, but my wife turned 40 this last year and most of our friends as well. So I, I totally know what you missed out on there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about you? For me, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So for me, the, the, you know, I traveled extensively the last five years. I was never home. So uh, it's the first time I've been at home for five, six, seven months uh, without a break, right? And I really got to enjoy my home, but I also realized how much traffic there is in my, back, my backyard that I can't. So uh, the thing I'm looking... Uh, for is perhaps maybe finding a more peaceful place to live in where there's not a lot of noise and also taking my time off uh, in my my amazing vacations that I would take. Uh, I'm really looking forward to doing that again. Uh, what I, um, in terms of the least, um, I guess the thing I would avoid is, is uh, while I'm out, I should watch what I eat. And so my diet is very important to me. And this is a learning that I had was, you know what, just because you're traveling, um, you got to take care of yourself. And uh, so I'm more interested in, you know, enjoying, enjoying being out there, but I don't necessarily need to enjoy all the food. Yeah. <laughs> Eat less of it. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, uh, again, really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciated both of your time. And I know that there's a lot of takeaways that I'm going to have from it. So th thank you for sharing. Thank you.